And Lord, we could give thanks and give thanks and give thanks to you. And time could not, time could not contain all the reasons we have to praise you. But Lord, this morning, I pray that our hearts would be tuned to you. Lord, that our hearts and our desires, Lord, in the midst of all that goes on in this holiday season and Black Fridays and Cyber Mondays and all the gift giving that goes on, Lord, that we would not be captured primarily with the desires of the flesh and the lust of our eyes. But God, what would capture our hearts is a love for you. Lord, that we would love you because you have first loved us. And Lord, this morning that you would stir our hearts. Lord, we thank you that, that, that we have reasons to celebrate. We have reasons to give you praise. We have reasons to give you, uh, give you glory for all that you have done for us. And Lord, this morning I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts to your authority. Open our eyes and our hearts to your love. Open our eyes and our hearts to your grace. And Lord, may our hearts be stirred to love you and that out in our everyday lives. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And if the rest of you will open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Uh, the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 11 today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one close to you in the pew. And this is on page 848 in the pew Bible. So Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at 1127 through the first part of chapter 12 this morning. Again, it's on page 848. In your pew Bible, I encourage you to follow along as we walk through this this morning. This morning, the th- big theme in our text this morning is that of authority. And authority is a challenging topic because how many of you like authority? Right? I mean, authority is something we struggle with, isn't it? I mean, I guess we struggle with others having authority because we actually want to be the authority. You know, we want to be in charge. We want to be the ones who call the shots. We want to make decisions for ourselves. And yet, when we come to this issue of authority, um, ultimately, as we read in the Bible, we read there's an authority that's higher than us and one that we need to submit to. And as we submit to that higher authority that's ultimately God, we know that that's ultimately best for us. And yet we wrestle with that authority. And it's authority that's something that we're not the only ones that have wrestled with it that we see throughout the Bible, people wrestle with authority and the group of people we're going to look at today are challenged by Jesus' authority. And as we look at that this morning, I want us to, to recognize this morning that sin creates problems for us, that sin causes us to be blind to the authority of Jesus, that sin causes us to be selfish with the gifts that God gives to us, that sin causes us to be controlled by the opinions of others, And yet in the midst of all of this, God gives us a right perspective, and he corrects all this with his authority. So this morning, in chapter 11, verse 27 is where we'll begin. It starts by saying this, And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, just a little context, they're heading down to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. Jesus has been performing all kinds of miracles. And as they're heading down to Jerusalem, it says, And as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say 
from man, they were afraid of the people for all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants who, and he went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to his tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy the tenant, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, throughout this passage, we see the authority of Jesus coming in to clear focus. And this passage begins in this first section, verses 11, chapter 11, verses 27 through the end of that chapter, focuses on two questions. The first question is a question that's asked by the Pharisees and the scribes and the um, elders. And the second one is a question that's asked of Jesus. And why these questions are important is because, as we recognize, questions reveal our spiritual eyesight. See, we ask questions, and when we ask questions, we're revealing things about our understanding. Things that we understand, I mean, we're asking questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus. By the questions we ask, we reveal kind of where are we spiritually. On the other side, questions reveal our spiritual eyesight by questions that are asked of us. People ask us questions about, about God's Word. They ask us about the Bible, about Jesus. And our responses to that also reveal our spiritual eyesight. And Jesus wisely uses questions here. He uses questions throughout his ministry. And in these questions, Jesus is going to penetrate their hearts. But the passage begins with this group of people. And it describes in verse 27 three groups of people. It talks about the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And these three groups of people made up is what was known as the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was in many ways like the Jewish Supreme Court. This group of people had a lot of power. When it comes to the idea of the temple and what happened in the temple, the courtyards and the nation of Jerusalem, these guys were the big shots. They, call, they set the rules, they enforce the rules, and they have a ton of authority. And they come to Jesus because if we look back at a page in our Bible the day before, uh, beginning in verse 15, Jesus came into Jerusalem. He had looked around and he saw in the temple courtyards, those courtyards that were being that area was to be for the worship of the nations. The Gentiles could come. But they'd set up all these tables. And they're selling stuff. They're selling stuff that could be sacrificed. They're exchanging money there. Um, they've got these animals there that they're selling. It's, it's kind of been a shortcut. People are just passing through. 
Jesus looks at all this, and Jesus realizes this temple is to be called a house of prayer. And in his anger over this, this righteous anger that he has, he goes in and he turns over the tables and he drives out the money changers and he keeps people from going through there. Right? So this big scene the day before that Jesus shows up and he, he cleans house, literally. So the next day, these religious leaders come to him and they come to him and they, they're probably not real happy. Right? I mean, they come to Jesus and they say to him in verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you authority to do them? See, they ask a question. And this question they ask of Jesus, if we, if we look at what they're asking, they said, what authority are you doing these things? The immediate context is, who gave you authority to come in and to do all this in the temple? But Jesus has been serving, he's been ministering for three years. And in the book of Mark, as we track through the book of Mark, they're asking, who gave you the authority to do these things? And we could look at, well, what are some of the other these things Jesus has done besides turn over the, temp, turn over the tables? If we would look back in chapter 1, we realize that one of the things that he did with authority was teach. He said he taught as one who had authority, not like all the other teachers. Other things we see Jesus doing throughout the book of Mark in his ministry he cast out unclean spirits. He healed sickness. He had authority to cleanse lepers and to heal paralyzed people. He had the authority to, to, to calm a storm simply by speaking to the weather. He had the authority to cure a woman from a chronic bleeding condition. He raised a young girl from the dead. He has authority to turn two fish and five loaves into bread into a meal for 5,000 people. He walked on water. He removed a demon from a Gentile woman's daughter. He fed 4,000 people. He healed blind people. He caused a tree to wither simply by speaking to it. And what's the question the authorities are asking? By what authority are you doing this? And if you're listening to that, you're thinking, are you kidding me? What authority do you think he's doing all this stuff by? I mean, who can do these things? Who can cast out demons? Who can walk on water? Who can calm storms? Who can raise the dead? There's only one that can do that. And they're saying, whose authority, whose authority are you doing this on? And the, what we recognize is that, that the blind refuse to see what is obvious. It's obvious. As we read through Mark and we see this, who can do these things? Who has authority? It's clear that his authority is coming from God. And as we understand this, we learn that the words and the works of Jesus, they reveal his divine authority. What he's been teaching, what he's been doing, they demonstrate that where does his authority come from? It comes from God. That it's divine authority. And yet they see this with their eyes. They've watched all this happen before them. They are hearing this with their ears. And yet in the midst of it, they're unwilling to let this touch their hearts. What they see and what they hear doesn't penetrate any more than beyond the skin of their, their ears and their eyes. It goes no further than that. It goes no further than that because they, 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 have, they don't have a desire to see this. They're blind to this reality, and we recognize this blindness comes two ways. It's blind that there's a level they can't see it, I mean, the scriptures tell us that in the flesh we are blind, that we can't understand the things of God. But there's also a willful blindness piece of this. It's not just that they can't see it, 
they don't want to see it. They don't want to see where this authority comes from because they recognize their authority is threatened if it comes from someplace other than man. If it comes from if it comes from God, then they need to be submitting to this. And as we recognize this, and so often as we hear these people, these religious leaders, they're blind. But we also recognize they're a lot like us. I think about how often we are able to see and hear what Jesus does, but in the midst of this, we hold tightly to the authority of our own lives. I want to do what I want to do. And I'm going to come up with reasons why it's okay for me to do what I want to do, to justify living a certain way, to justify responding to someone in a certain way. I have all these reasons why I am the authority of this, that we want want to determine what's right for us, we want to determine what's true for us. We want to determine what, what the direction of our life goes. We want to determine all of these things for ourselves. We want to be the authority. And when we're confronted with the Word of God, we're challenged with that. I mean, think about, if, if we think about the illustration of, of an illustration of where the authority of God rests in our lives, if we would describe, I mean, the Bible is our authority. Is our authority. We believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we, because of that, because it's God's Word that it has authority, and the question we need to ask ourselves is, what place does, God, does, God, does God's authority have in my life? And we could look at it in three places. One could be this, that God has, God has authority over me. What he says is true. What he says is right. He's God. He calls the shots. My responsibility is to submit to his authority. That's what God, That's a place it can have in our lives. Another place it can have in our lives is one that says, well, I'm not going to allow God to be an authority over me, but we can stand over and it be an authority over the Bible and to say, I don't believe this part of it. I don't believe that part of it. That part may apply to some people, that. And so we, just, we stand in authority over the Bible. And, we, and so if we stand in authority over the Bible, who's ultimately the authority? I am, right? So I'm either under the authority of God, I stand over the authority of God, but I'm burdened too that sometimes that we kind of play games with God and we want to put it here. That we don't deny the authority of God's word. We don't say, I don't believe God's word is an authority. That we say, yeah, I believe God's word is an authority. But in this situation... It's okay for me. I compromise. I say, I know God says I shouldn't lie, but if I tell the truth right now, I'm going to be in big trouble. So I'm, I'm kind of compromising with it. I confess that it has authority, but I'm not going to give it authority right now. That, 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 I, know that I know that I shouldn't like, respond in anger towards this person, but, but, but what they did to me, and I justify what I do. And God's word becomes, I, I will confess its authority, but I don't sit under its authority. I compromise. I play games with God's authority, and which, which actually means if I'm going to play games with God's authority, do I really believe he's the authority? You see, the challenge for us is what place does God's authority have in our lives? And we can look at these people, and they clearly, they do not want Jesus to have authority over them. And they're asking him these questions about, but who do you think you are? It's a rather foolish question, because if their eyes are open, they're going to see that he is from God. But as we look at Jesus' response, as we look at Jesus' response in this, he says back to chapter, in our Bible, chapter 11, it says this. Jesus, in verse 29, says to them, 
I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he asked the question, was the baptism of John, uh, was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. And in verse 31 says, and they discussed it with one another. Now, I just want to put a pause here. They're questioning Jesus because they see themselves as having authority over Jesus. They're the religious authorities. But it's interesting. Jesus asks them a question, says to them two times, answer me, answer me. And then they deliberate about his question. I would propose that Jesus' response to them and their response to Jesus illustrates his authority. I mean, they're the religious leaders. Their response should have been, who are, who are you to ask us questions? We're the question askers here, not you. But what does Jesus do? Jesus has all authority. He's not intimidated by these guys at all. Why? Because he has authority. He has all this authority. And so he asked them a question. And he asked them a question and he says to them, whose authority or whose baptism was John from? Heaven or from man? So, John the Baptist was preaching and teaching and he was all the, and he was baptizing people for the repentance of sins and he says, "Was that from God or was it from man?" Did John just make that up or was it from God? And these guys go into deliberation mode. They start to think through this. They begin to think, "Okay, if we say it says here, if we say it's from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? And because we think of some of the things that John taught, uh, they're weighing these answers. Because if they say it's from God, then they, they, they should have been listening to them. Because John said that Jesus was greater than he is. John said that Jesus, um, that John says he wasn't even worthy to untie John's sandals. He said that one greater than him is coming. He said to him that John said, I baptize with water, but he'll baptize with fire. John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John's teaching was. And so these guys are, are, are kind of weighing the different responses and realizing if we say he's from God, then we need to be listening to what John said. And John said, Jesus, all these things are true of Jesus. Then we need to submit ourselves to Jesus. And we're not doing that. So they think, all right, well, if that's we say it's from God, that's going to happen. But if they say it's from man, they realize, well, everybody else thinks that, uh, that John's from God. And if we say that John's not from God, all the crowd, they're going to riot. They're going to, they're going to reject our authority because they are not, they, I mean, they clearly understand that John was from God. And so these guys are weighing these options. And what do they do? It says in verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. Okay. Interesting answer, isn't it? It's not just that we're not going to answer it. We don't know. They're playing games here. They're playing games with the truth. And he says, we're not going to go there. We're not going to say he's from God. We're not going to say he's from man because we're concerned about how this is going to affect us. And, and, and so what we see, this group of religious leaders are not only blind, but they're also self-focused. They're self-focused. And the self-focused refuse to answer questions that are costly. They think if they answer it, they're going to lose their power, or if they answer it the other way, that the people are going to deny them, and it's not going to go well for them. And so what do they do? They end up playing games with this. 
and, and this battle in their hearts over authority. Who is going to be the authority? Is it going to be Jesus? Or is it going to be us? Is it going to be the opinions of others? And so what happens? See, what's going on here with these guys is the same thing that happens with us. I mean, listen, we become very calculating in how we respond to others. The fear of man causes that. You know, we, we think about if, if I say it this way, um, people might make, I'm going to look bad. If I say it this way, I might look bad. And so we end up playing games with truth. And, and I would say it this way, that the fear of man, that, that the fear of man leads us to say and do things that are safe rather than things that are true and right. We think about how others are going to respond to us. And when it comes to issues of, of speaking the truth, when it comes to issues of talking to people about things they need to hear, when it comes to making a statement or somebody asks us a question, we become very calculating with how we're going to answer. Because we think, if I answer it this way, what are they going to think of me? And I think, well, I don't want to say it that way. And so, so I, I kind of play games with truth and I just say what's safe. I don't end up doing what's right. And because these people, the, the religious leaders here, because they're self-focused, because they're blind, the only answer they can give is, we don't know. And I think about how often the fear of man captures us. I think about in, I mean, we, I mean, a common example is in a marriage relationship. You know, you know that your spouse needs to hear some truth that you probably need to be the one to talk to them about, but why don't we say it? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of the consequences. Well, if I say that to her, she's going to be mad. If I say that to him, he's going to be upset. And so I calculate, and what do I do? I don't say what's true. I don't do what's right. And I just kind of go along, trapped by the fear of man. I'm self-focused. I'm the authority of what I'm going to do and not do, and I'm calculating all that, so I don't do it. We think about in our culture, we think about some of the things that aren't safe to say in our culture. You know, maybe it's in your workplace. It's not safe to declare that life begins at conception and ending a life, a pre-born life, is, is wrong. That that's, that's a taking of a life. It's murder. That's not safe to say in our culture. It's not safe to hold to a view about marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifelong commitment. It's not safe to say that. It's not safe to say that God is opposed to adultery, that God is opposed to a, a, a divorce. It is, not, it is not safe for us to talk about these kind of issues in our culture. And yet we read in the Bible about what's true and what's right, and so often what we do, we end up playing games of truth and we just stay safe. We stay safe because of the fear of man. And we can criticize the religious leaders here and think, are these people that blind? Are they this foolish? Jesus is standing right in front of them, and they deny his authority. And what do they end up doing? They say, no, you know what? Jesus isn't our authority. We're not buying that. We're going to put him here or here in another place, and we're not going to go there. And we realize that we need to challenge, as believers in Christ, we need to allow our faith in Christ to triumph over our fear of man. Listen, this fear of man, I, I think this fear of man is huge for all of us. I know it affects me. 
I, I know it, it affects me when I, I think about engaging somebody from our church family and a challenge, something that's going on in their life that they need to be addressed. I don't like to do that. Why? Because I'm concerned about what they're going to think. And I'm wrestling with you, am I more concerned about what they're going to think and I'm going to shape the truth that way, or am I going to believe what the Bible teaches and am I going to boldly and courageously and loving speak, lovingly speak truth? And I know you all say, we want our pastor to do that. We want people to speak truth in love. Just not to me. Right? Because if he says it to me, I'll probably get mad. Well, I wouldn't because some other, everybody else would. And we realize that this, and so what's going on, this fear of man leads us to say and do what is safe rather than saying and doing what is true and what is right. And we need to let the word of God have authority over our lives to recognize that God's word needs to have greater authority than the opinions of others. That's our challenge. Who has authority? The opinions of others or God's word? Well, as we continue on, it says in verse Uh, At the end of verse 33, it says, And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I think the the guys that asked the question are just like, Okay, that was a bad bad idea. Asking them that question, he kind of cornered us, and we didn't have an answer. And they're like, Let's just let this be done. And I think they're kind of hoping, Let's just go away. But Jesus doesn't stop there. It says in verse chapter 12, verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. Now, as we look down in chapter 12, verse 12, it says that they, they're seeking to arrest Jesus, but they fear the people. It says this, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so they understood it correctly. This parable that Jesus is going to say, it's all about these people that are standing right in front of them. Right? They understand it. And so what's the parable say? It says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for it in the, in the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and he went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, He's talking about a vineyard, an owner, a tower, a wine press, a fence, all this stuff that's been prepared. And these guys, he's talking to the Jewish leaders who knew their Old Testament very well. And so when they begin hearing about an owner building a vineyard and all of that, their minds would have quickly gone to Isaiah chapter 5. Turn there with me because we have very similar language used in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is back in the Old Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, this is on page uh, 569. And Isaiah the prophet, the scene is he's at a wedding, and as he's at this wedding and he makes this statement, he begins talking not about this wedding couple, it seems like, but he changes it to talk about Israel. And so he says this in Isaiah 5, verse 1. He says, let me sing a song for my beloved, a love song concerning his vineyard. All right, this love, this one who has a vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. As we pause there, 
very similar to what Jesus is talking about here. And in both cases, he's talking about the nation of Israel. The God has chosen a people, a very specific people for very specific purposes. God's blessed them in all these great ways. It's like this this owner making this great vineyard for all these tenants. He's cleared the stones, built the tower, put a fence. It's all great. And what's it say? He hewed out a wine vat, and it says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then he goes on in verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so, in Isaiah, God uses this picture of a vineyard to help see that Israel has not lived up to what they were supposed to. Jesus is using the same illustration, same idea, back in chapter 12. And so, back to chapter 12, we have this vineyard. It's everything set. It's been planted. A few years have passed. It's presenting grapes. And the owner sends back some people, it says in verse 2, to get some of the fruit. Okay, some of the fruit. It's his place. He deserves some of it. It's all, it he owns it all. So he sends some people to get some of it. And what's their response in verse 3? And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Whoa, that's not right. I mean, it's the owner's vineyard. He sends somebody to get some of, the, some of the fruit. They should have given it to him, but they didn't. Well, it goes on. What happens in verse 4? Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. Strike two. It goes on, and he sent another, and him they killed. Whoa. So, so he sends one, sends another, treat him, a third they kill, and so with many others, and some they beat, and some they killed. As we see this unfolding, we see that God is expecting faithfulness, that God is expecting faithfulness of these people. Of those he entrusts with his treasure, he's given them the vineyard, he's given them everything that they need, all of these great blessings, and what does he expect for them? He expects some faithfulness in giving them back of some of what he's entrusted with them. And yet, what's their response? The blind and the self-focused, what's true? They're faithless. They're faithless. They deserve, they need to give some back, but what do they do? They keep it all themselves. Not only do they keep it themselves, they treat the servants who come to receive it harshly. They reject God's authority and they refuse to give him what he deserves. That's what we're seeing unfolding in this parable. They're rejecting this owner. They're rejecting him. They're not giving him what they deserve. They are being a faithless people. Right? And so, what is response? He sends one, he sends another, he sends a third, and then he keeps sending a bunch more of them. And he sends all these different people, one after another after another, to say, hey, hey this stuff belongs to, the, belongs to the owner. Give him some of that. And they're like, no way, we're not giving him anything. And as we see this going on, what we see happening is that they are increasingly hostile towards those who call them to faith. How is this increasing hostility seen? The first one says that they beat him and then they send him away. Verse 4, they strike him on the head and treat him shamefully. 
he sends another, and they kill him. And then so he sends a whole bunch of others, and they beat some of them, and they kill others. And what we're seeing here is the history of the nation of Israel, of God sending prophet after prophet after prophet who the nation rejects, 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 treat them shamefully. They beat them. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. He was going to be killed. Others were killed. There's a history that would tell us that Isaiah was probably sawn in two. Right? They kill these prophets. And we see these things unfold. And they're rejecting this. And it's increasing hostility. Why? Because we don't want anybody to have authority over us. Yes, we've been given this vineyard, but it's ours now. He gave it to us. It's all ours. We're not going to be faithful with it all. It's all going to be about us. And as a result of that, it says in verse 8, and verse, I'm sorry, in verse 7, but the tenant said, I'm sorry, back to verse 6. He says, and he still had one other, one more plan. What was the plan? He said, I had one other, and he said to them, he had a beloved son. I've sent all my servants. I've sent all these people. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Because he says, my beloved son. And finally he sent them saying, they will respect my son. Why will they respect the son? Because he's identified with the owner. I mean, he, is, he reflects the owner perfectly. And they will respect my son. But verse 7 says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. If we get rid of this, this son, all authority is gone. The authority will be over, and we'll have all authority. It'll be our vineyard. We'll take care of it. We don't have to worry about the owner anymore. And it says, what? He says, and they took, in verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. As we reflect on this, Jesus in the context here, a few chapters earlier, what's he saying is going to happen to him? He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed, and he's going to raise from the dead. And Jesus is talking about this parable of these religious leaders and himself, and he is the son, and what's going to happen? They're going to kill him and reject him. And it says what's going to happen? It says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What's the owner going to do? And it says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. His judgment is going to come on those who've rejected the Son. And he says, have you not read the Scripture, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so as we see this increasing hostility towards those who are coming to call them to faith, they're like, we don't want to hear this, we don't want to hear this. Keep quit sending people to us and tell us to be faithful. The hostility increases. They reject the Son. And what is the consequence of them rejecting the son is that they, are, they end up being rejected by the owner. They reject the son and they are rejected. In the context of what Jesus is saying, you reject the son and you are rejected by God. As we look at this continuing, we see then that the rejected son becomes the foundation the foundation of a new and faithful people. And this is what we see in chapter, chapter 12, verse 10. He says, have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected 
What's it become? The cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And this idea, this verse, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, keep your place here and look back in a, couple, back a chapter. Back in chapter 11, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey, and he's riding in on a donkey. In verse 8, it says, in verse 11, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, and they had from the field. And those who went before and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Who is coming in? The Messiah is coming in. What is their praise? It's save us! Save now! Now, that comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is where that comes from. As we look in chapter 12 and says the stone that the builders rejected, it also comes from Psalm 118. The praise of Jesus coming as a Savior as praised in Psalm 118, but the promise that Jesus is also going to be rejected and become the cornerstone is also in that same psalm. It's a psalm of salvation. It's a psalm of, of judgment. And we see those two truths come together in this passage, that they're in, this, in these chapters, that there is salvation to those who will turn to the Son, that He has come to save. And yet if they reject Him, there's judgment that comes. And as a result of His rejection, Jesus builds a whole new people, a whole new people called the church. The church of the living God, made up of Jews and Gentiles and all of those who will repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He is the one that builds on all of this. And who does he build? A new people. A new people who will do what? Be faithful. A faithful people. Unlike the faithless people who want to be their own authority, want to call their own shots, he is the authority. He is the king. And this new people submit to him. And as we consider today, that is who we are to be. We are to be a faithful people. That Jesus has come. He came to rescue, to save us from our sins, to die on the cross, to raise from the dead, to rescue us from this desire to be our own authority. To set us free from the slavery of being our own kings and queens. To set us free to serve the one who knows us best, the one who has all authority. The one who, when we submit to his authority, we flourish. When we surrender our lives to him, our days begin to get brighter. That's what he's calling us to. A people who are faithful. A people who love him. A people who are grateful for what he has done for us. Faithful to the cornerstone, the one who has given us everything that we have. And as we consider this this morning, I, I encourage you to examine what place does God's authority have in your life? Not, not in your confessional life, not just in saying, yes, I believe that the Bible is true and has all authority. But saying, yes, I believe it's true and it has all authority over me. And my response to his authority is to submit to him to trust Him, to trust that His authority is better than my authority. 
that following his path, submitting to him, is how I can flourish most and give him honor. Because whenever I'm here, I'm not giving him honor. I'm honoring myself, elevating myself. I want to call you this morning to consider where is the place of God's authority in your life. Now, the title this morning, this, the title of the message this morning is, Who Do You Think You Are? And the question, good question for us, who do we think we are when playing games with God's authority? I would call you this morning, if, if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, that today that you would repent, that you'd recognize He does have all authority. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's died to give Himself to me so that I could have new life. If you're a believer in Christ, I would ask you to examine how is God's authority working itself out in your life. Another way of saying that is, what's the evidence that he's the authority? And the evidence is a life of faithfulness, of hearing God's word and doing God's word. Are you faithful? Does he have authority? Let's pray. Father, this morning we are humbled by the fact that you have all authority. And Lord, as we look at the nation of Israel and them playing games with truth and being trapped by the fear of man and seeking to do what's safe rather than what's right and true, that they have themselves up their own authority. They've allowed the authority of the ideas of others to captivate them. Lord, I pray you'd help us to see ourselves today. They'd help us to see ourselves in the place of your authority in our lives. Do we submit to your authority? Are we trapped by the authority that we give to the opinions of others? Are we trapped by the authority of we just want to call our own shots? Lord, help us this morning to know that you are the one who has all authority, that you're a good and a loving authority, that you want our lives to be submitted to you, Lord, I pray that you would probe our hearts. And Lord, where there are gaps in our faith, that you would fill them with obedience. Now for those today who are not saved, I pray that you would open their minds and their hearts to understand and to surrender to you, to your authority, to your goodness and your kindness today. God, we thank you that you've given us Jesus and you've given us hope and you've given us help. It's in his name we pray.